This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. As union organizing activity ramps up across the United States, the dirty tactics of corporate employers at combating unionizing remain out of public view. Now, a new series by Capital and Main seeks to expose the lengths that employers like Amazon go to in order to undermine workers' rights. My guest, Marcus Barham, is a journalist at Capital and Main, where he has contributed several stories to the series Inside the Secret of World of Union Busting and specifically written about the hundreds of millions of dollars that companies spend to bust unions. Welcome to the program, Marcus. Great. Thank you for having me, Sonali. So this idea of union busting seems like such an old-fashioned one, but of course corporations never actually stopped doing it. It seems as though they're ramping up their activities now. One great example was what Amazon engaged in in Bessemer, Alabama, during the union vote earlier this year. The NLRB found that uh, Amazon violated so many of, uh, of the uh, laws that they had to have a redo. Tell me about the series that Capital and Maine is doing and what you're finding out, some of the highlights that the series is finding out about the links that corporate employers are going to to stop their workers from from unionizing sure no certainly i mean first of all this focus on union busting we did four stories actually five with an introduction they're part of a larger project called the 5100 project which is all focused on income inequality so we launched this in may and we're doing stories throughout next year all focused on different aspects the causes of income inequality over the last 40 years i mean everyone's familiar with the issue but not maybe the extent of how um, excessive it is how extreme it is uh the causes of it and uh how it's affecting you know people's lives from we've interviewed you know we profiled everyone from social workers in arizona to teachers in florida to the factory workers up and outside of boston uh, all over the country, and we continue to do that. And as part of that, we are looking at, you know, part of the reason for this widening income inequality, especially since the 1970s, uh, is due to uh, decline of unions. And union membership, as everyone knows, has gone down, I think it was about 20% in the mid 80s uh, of, you know, American workers, full-time American workers. And it's gone down to about 10 or 11%. So a very striking you know, decrease. And there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, as we all know. And one of the reasons is that I think companies have gotten much more aggressive at opposing organizing efforts. So we wanted to find a way to tell the story of the decline of unions that uh, you know, looked at other factors that weren't being explored and maybe um, parts of the story that really haven't been fully explained. And I think one of those is that part of that aggressive stance that companies have taken, like Amazon did, in Bessemer is through this thriving kind of shadowy union avoidance industry, which, as we reported on the story, you know, someone noted in the 1970s alone, that one decade, the amount of money spent on these union avoidance consultants or what you know, we call union busters um, went up 10 times like it exploded in the 70s and then kept increasing through the 80s and 90s until the Economic Policy Institute several years ago did an analysis that predicted uh, a very statistical you know, estimation that at least $340 million a year is being spent by 
American companies, large and small, on these union avoidance consultants, that industry that that is brought in by management to stop organizing efforts. $340 million a year. I mean, presumably the idea is to stop unions so that the companies don't have to pay as much in labor costs, but they're paying to bust the unions, which suggests that they see just, you know, this huge amount, $340 million as the cost of doing business. I mean, that means that workers, if if they weren't being subjected to this relentless, relentless anti-union propaganda and tactics, might be making so much more money. Yeah, certainly. And I think one of the examples I cite in the story illustrates exactly what you're talking about, how much these companies are willing to spend. That Dollar General, we're all familiar with the super discount store. There's, you know, thousands of them across the country. And the workers don't pay very, you know, don't get paid very much. Uh, and at a store in Connecticut, uh, very small store. I mean, one of their, you know, they have thousands of them, but there are only six employees at the store who wanted to be unionized. One of them was fired, so that left five workers. So they applied to the NLRB to hold an election. And five workers we're talking about. Five workers who make probably $13 to $14, 15 maybe an hour. So during the course of a day, they probably earn $600 to $700 a day. Now, Dollar General- That's total, not, in, not per person, by the way. Just oh, total for yeah, that's five total. workers. That's yeah, total yeah. for like how much they have to pay per day, mm-hmm. I mean, on, on these workers. And uh, Dollar General brought in these union avoidance consultants, these union busters, who they're paying $2,700 per day mm. per consultant. Wow. Per person. And they brought in, I think it was three or four uh, consultants just to defeat this organizing effort of five people. So that basically means they set each worker down and that's, you know, according to the accounts uh, and try to convince them as strongly as they could that the union wasn't in their interests. And they can do that because uh, these management is allowed to do these, what they call captive audience meetings, which is when you show up at work and you start your shift and then maybe two hours in your boss says, Hey, we need to talk to you for a few hours. And you go in and they just can talk to you for as long as they want to until your shift is done. They can show you videos. They can show you all kinds of anti-union messaging. And so the, the effort failed, but, and it seems ridiculous. They would spend that much money. But then if you think of a, in terms of a business expense, like you said, a return on investments, the ROI is pretty good because, there's literally, you know, tens of thousands of people who work at Dollar General. So if each of those workers formed the union and fought for more money, Dollar General, which made three billion in profit in 2020, they would have a slightly lower profit, probably, maybe not. But that is what that's obviously their concern is that their huge profit margins would shrink a little bit. I mean, they're a massive company that makes a lot of money. I doubt that they would start losing money, but they like having that healthy profit margin. So they're willing to spend that much money, thousands of dollars per day per person to defeat a union effort at this now, one store in Connecticut. One of the other things that you wrote about was looking at the history of um, how we know about the union busting playbook. I thought this was a really fascinating story or, or piece, the story of an unlikely alliance about how a union organizer um, teamed up with a reformed or maybe repentant uh, union buster and got him to reveal his dirty tricks. Tell us about that story and, and what its relevance is today. 
Certainly, certainly. Uh, it's a sort of a, a book that came out. It's called Confessions of a Union Buster. And it came out in sort of the mid-90s. Uh, and at the time, it was very controversial. Um, so Marty Levitt, who was this longtime union buster, and he'd even, you know, gone to jail several times. He somehow had, a, you know, a, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it was a, a, a change of faith or whatever it was, but in any case, he started to regret what he had done, and he wanted to change his ways, and he wanted to repent for what he considered his sins. So he wrote this book, and when he started writing the book, he reached out to a longtime organizer named Bob Mullenkamp, uh, who had been on the opposite side of him. They were both, there was a huge um, a union battle at a hospital outside of Detroit, and they were on opposite sides during that battle. And uh, Marty's company, his employers actually got Bob Mullenkamp arrested just for showing up in the hallways of the hospital talking to employees. And he got booked and, you know, it was not good for the effort. And, and in the end, they never became friends but when this union buster started to, you know, repent for his uh, his life, he reached out to this organizer, Bob Mullenkamp, for advice. And Bob said, "Definitely, go ahead, write the book. You know, I'll uh, I'll bring you to union meetings." So he wrote this uh, controversial book that really went into brutal detail about what he did and his own flawed life. And it, I mean, it caused a lot of uh, unrest among his former co-workers and colleagues. Uh, and there was a lot of suspicion on the union side, as I you know, related from Bob in the interview. Uh, Bob actually brought them to a Teamsters meeting and it didn't go well. A lot of the Teamsters were not very happy. Um, they wouldn't really forgive Marty for the work he'd done. But other union members, I think, appreciated having that insight into how the enemy thinks like because basically marty kind of described it was almost a scientific method that's built on fear and intimidation and he described in, in clinical detail how the companies would bring in these consultants and how they would go about breaking down the organizing efforts one of the and, things you also point out was there was an industry loophole from the 1950s allowing companies to hire these union busters these consultants without disclosing it that loophole had been closed and then trump reopened it yes yeah exactly um it, i mean basically they are required to submit these forms that show okay this company you know coca-cola hired this company this is how much the fee was per person. This is what, in a general description, what they were there for. I mean, they're very, they don't go into the detail. Uh, and under the Trump administration, they scrapped that. And then Biden mandated, the Biden administration kind of mandated reverse that to have companies have to disclose the these contracts. And yet they still, there's a loophole that allows companies to not have to disclose the fee, how much they actually pay these consultants. So when I was going through all these, you know, thousands of, of filings with the Department of Labor, a lot of times they'll have, some of the companies will reflect like, oh yeah, we paid these workers. I mean, we paid these consultants $3,500 per day or $10,000 per day, but others leave it blank. And so these giant companies like Safeway um, or Union Carbide, you'll see a blank spot where you have no idea how much they paid. And some of these contracts go on for months and months and months or even a year so you know that it involves a lot of money 
but you it's it's opaque and that has yet to be reversed by the Biden administration. Is it safe uh, so to say the- is it safe to say that um some of the other tactics, in addition to you know taking advantage of this loophole, or perhaps via taking advantage of this loophole, is it safe to say that the tactics Levitt outlined in his book are likely being used today? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing that's changed, I mean, the sense I've gotten, we talked to some of these consultants, many of whom obviously didn't want to go uh, on the record, and I've you know I've, I've kept talking to them even since the stories ran. Um, and one thing they, they've emphasized, and I've talked to union organizers, obviously many of them, is that there's less physical intimidation. I mean, like I mentioned at the start of one of the stories, in the old days, they used to literally have tanks. And even, obviously, you see some of the movies they used to shoot um, striking coal miners in West Virginia, for example, back in the 1890s. They don't do that anymore, but it's still based on fear and intimidation. So even though it's not maybe physical intimidation as much. Uh, is there a lot of surveillance? Uh, one of your yeah, colleagues wrote about the use of technology. And, yeah, exactly. And surveillance. And so a lot of them, that was one story, was focused on how they've been able to use workplace uh, technologies that are very common now from email monitoring to social media tracking to even keystroke tracking where people you know type on their company computers wow. uh, to be able to follow uh, what employers are doing and their organizing activity and who's pro-union, who's anti-union. Amazon has been, you know, has been highlighted for deploying these tactics. So it's changed, but it's probably even more effective in a way than the physical intimidation, which ended up, I think, uh, outraging so many workers that they became anti-company. Now these, you know, these um, sort of covert surveillance, most employees don't even know about it. So... And, it's and one thing, I mean, I know there's a lot to talk about, but one thing I think is interesting is, in a way, this decline of unions has, is a little bit um, almost like self-perpetuating. It's like a vicious cycle. Because in Amazon, the experience in Bessemer, it turns out that a lot of younger workers who weren't familiar with unions just because they didn't grow up knowing a strong union in their community, they voted against the organizing effort. Whereas older workers, especially older African-American workers who are familiar with unions, and know what they can provide, they were supportive of the union effort. So unfortunately, a lot of, I mean, it's changing now, I think, with the gig economy, but a lot of younger workers still remain a little skeptical of unions. One of provide. one of the very effective propaganda uh, techniques that the companies like Amazon use now is to say, we pay our workers $15 an hour, you know, which on the surface matches the, the fight for 15 demand. Um, and they say that they benefit from, that workers benefit from a direct relationship with the with the company but of course they don't tell you all of the surveillance the um unsafe conditions the uh unpredictable staff schedules which is a big complaint of mm-hmm. workers you know they don't know if they're going to be working 40 hours that week whether it's going to be nine to five or or six to 12 you know they have no idea they can't plan their lives they don't have yeah. any rights um to to even control that and and so amazon's been and some of these companies have been so um, good at convincing even customers, as well as probably their own workers, that they are that this is as good as it gets, right, for workers. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I'm wondering finally if you you said that the the push going back to the original story about hundreds of millions of dollars being spent a year in anti-union activity and how that money, that big money that was being spent started in the 70s. Did you see that expenditure coincide with? 
the fall in wages? You know, do we see a decent correlation there between the funding of anti-union activity and and the the the, the stagnation of wages? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. It's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, we haven't done the actual um, statistical you know, uh, graphing of that and charting of that, which, and the reason for that, I think is it's very difficult because these numbers are, are, are estimates, like even that $340 million number is an estimate because so many companies don't disclose how much they spend. Hmm. Uh, either they, you know, disclose filings that don't have the fee or they don't even disclose at all. So it's very difficult to predict, but I would assume that there would be um, a very distinct um, correlation where you would see an upswing in spending on these union busters and a downward trend for wages, which is you know what we've reported as part of our 5100 project. That's been the ongoing uh, you know drama of income inequality is that wages have even remained stagnant or gone down in real terms. And I think you would find um, sort of an X um, if you charted that. Well, I want to thank you so much, Marcus, for joining us today. We'll post a link to your series in Capital and Main from Great. our website. Great. And thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. My guest has been Marcus Baram, journalist at Capital and Main, where he's contributed several stories to the series Inside the Secretive World of Union Busting. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.